Hello and welcome back to this final instalment of Changemakers. Today's episode is another live one recorded last year in September at the Lone Design Club pop-up store on London's Regent Street. We often ask the question, can fashion ever be truly sustainable? According to BBC Futures, more of us now understand that the fashion industry accounts for about 10% of global carbon emissions and nearly 20% of wastewater. And while the environmental impact of flying is now well known, fashion uses more energy than both aviation and shipping combined. This is Changemakers, presented by Sustainably Influenced, a five-part mini-series focusing on the people and businesses making impactful changes in the sustainable fashion space today. I'm your host, Bianca Foley. Lone Design Club, or LDC, was founded in 2018 and signals the start of a critical shift towards more responsible patterns of consumption in the fashion industry and beyond. Aligning our spending to our values has never been more important. The ability to unite innovators and creators championing environmental and social sustainability in this space is a testament to the LDC community's hard work and purpose-driven mission. Describing themselves as the antidote to fast fashion, Lone Design Club was founded as the result of emerging international fashion and lifestyle brands uniting, with like-minded businesses rising up to take control and shape the future of retail. Today's guest is Shanna Bent, the founder and designer of conscious fashion brand Maison Bent, with a key mission of championing diversity. An alumna of Central St. Martins and London College of Fashion, Shanna strengthened her product development skills at Roland Murray and PR knowledge at Agent Provocateur before becoming brand coordinator at St Pancras Chambers Collections. Having launched Maison Bent in 2020, she has since been quoted in Harper's Bazaar, Marie Claire, CR Fashion Book, Vogue Italia and more. Over the past couple of years, we launched the podcast just before the pandemic. And we went from recording in real life with people and hearing those stories to doing everything over Zoom, which became very disconnected. So this season, we're really trying to go back to our roots and find that connection again. So, Shelley, you launched Maison Bent in February 2020 at a time where the pandemic was looming. What have the past two years looked like for you as a small but growing business? <clears throat> um, <laughs> a lot has happened since 2020. So, Feels like an alternative. <laughs> yes. So I went into 2020 feeling super optimistic, as I'm sure a lot of us did. You know, 2020 vision, 2020 is such a powerful number. It was also the year that I turned 30, so I had given myself... <laughs> I wouldn't have a 30-year-old. <laughs> so I had given myself this major deadline to finally launch my fashion brand. I've been doing fashion for a long time. I studied at CSM and LCF, then went into the real world, started working. And 2020 just felt like the right time to launch Maison Bent. So I put on my first ever solo presentation in February. I used all my fashion industry knowledge and all my contacts to pull off this thing that I had so much hopes for. And you know what? I did put it off. I attracted the right people. I was getting like great press from it. And so many people saw the presentation. I had like drink sponsors, I had like everything to put it all together. 
And then as soon as things were getting exciting, we went into lockdown one month later. And the world shut down. <laughs> but everything shut down, which I think everyone predicted would only last like a month or something. And no one expected, you know, what was going to happen. So whilst we were at home and everyone was, you know, sat in front of their laptops, during the pandemic, there was a face mask shortage. So I saw the opportunity to kind of take out my sewing machine and start making face masks out of the scraps from the fabrics that I used to put my first collection together. And that's actually how I found out about the brand. Really? Yes, it's there. Oh, that was so cool. I actually didn't want to make a face mask, if I'm completely honest. I was like, face mask, it's not fashionable, is it? And also, I shouldn't be selling them. This is to save people's lives. But everyone else was selling them, so I was like, it was just an opportunity as well. Sometimes you've got to do what you've got to do, haven't you? And then. After and there, was, there was a face mask shortage, and then George Floyd was murdered, which then sent the media into a frenzy. And then also, it attracted a lot of attention to black businesses, and I think specifically like small black owned businesses. And then this weird thing happened like, all of a sudden, journalists were like, We're looking for black young designers, or just black designers, we need black brands to feature in our publications, because that's all they want to talk about at the time. And I was like, oh, people want black designers. This has never happened before. We usually shun to the side. <laughs> I bet you were like, I'm here, yes. Look at me. I'm like, black owned brand. It's <laughs> me. <laughs> In every single email. And it worked. It was a very weird thing that was happening. So, because I fit their face mask category and their black owned business category, um, journalists were lapping it up. Do you feel like that sort of catapulted you to? I guess being in the public eye a little bit more in that sense. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, which is really, really weird. It's a strange feeling, isn't it, to get the notoriety off the back of something. Off two pandemics. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so I, I do have mixed emotions about it, if I'm yeah. really honest. And I think that's fair to say. But yeah. yeah, yeah, very weird. And yeah, so that kind of press recognition then attracted more opportunities my way. So like other people getting in touch with me, like stylists were getting in touch with me, PR companies that I never thought would you know be interested in representing me were getting in touch with me. So yeah, it was it was a lot going on, and then that led to the British Fashion Council also getting in touch with me to then get to present on the official schedule that September. And that was my dream, you know, I wanted to be on the official London Fashion Week schedule for ages, I just didn't think it would happen that quickly. And then the second show happened, and that's when I got featured in like Forbes and like The Guardian and stuff. So it's, it's been a roller coaster. it's been a whirlwind of different events, and things have just been kind of growing ever since that year. It's fantastic, it sounds like the ultimate pandemic baby, <laughs> but you've grown this brand out of in the past two years to have that much recognition, I think it's phenomenal. And you're also here, we were here for the first one at LBC, and you've still got a few pieces in the actual store, which is fantastic. So all the wonderful conscious shoppers that are here get to see you all. So speaking of conscious shopping and conscious brands, um, when I was doing my research for this conversation, I saw the perfect tagline on your website, and it said Maison Vent, a conscious fashion house championing diversity. Can you tell us a little bit more about how being diverse helps you to stand out as a conscious brand, and a little bit more about your brand, if that's okay? Yeah, sure. So during Fashion Uni, and kind of my early years in the fashion industry, so we're talking maybe around like 15, 12, 15 years ago, like blackness wasn't cool. 
after the Kakashi, you were kind of told to not celebrate your culture and your blackness and that blackness wasn't luxurious. So when I did launch my brand in 2020, this was before everything kicked off. So it's like 2019, I had the idea, you know what, I don't want to like hide away from like my ethnicity and my heritage anymore. I'm going to like the forefront. I want to use black models. I want to take inspiration from my culture and my background and put that at the forefront. But I feel like the only reason why it's cool now is because everything that happened in 2020, if I'm honest. I feel like, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a good thing that companies or brands are being held accountable for not representing minority people. This is a conversation that needs to happen. And it's not just within the conscious space, it's within the entire fashion industry. Yeah, so I wanted to put that at the forefront. I wanted to kind of showcase people that look like me. And, and they are still like we're kind of wanted in this luxurious space. But yeah, it's a shame that it's only getting recognition of the kind of George Floyd being murdered. And also, even though it's like a fourth thing at the moment where everyone wants to tick that diversity box, I do feel like it is a gateway to open up more doors in the future. So even though it's like, you know, very forced and very performative at the moment, I do think in the future it's going to like pay off. I mean, I don't know if anybody's seen the Stormzy's new video, Mel Maybe Do It, that came out. And it's just, for me, I saw that exactly what you're saying. It's showing that you can still represent your culture and be seen as luxurious. And I think it's not just something that applies to blackness. I think it applies to every ethnic group. And I think everybody can scream about it. So I think it's going to open up a lot more conversations going forward in the industry. And even with the appointment of somebody like Edward Enfield to being the editor of Vogue five years ago, something like that, having a person who is a proud black man being at the helm of one of the biggest publications across the world, we've seen a huge change in the industry there. But it's not something that's just going to happen overnight, is it? So I'm so glad to see that. And I think... Diversity does factor into a brand. So you've partnered with a lot of very well-known um, rental and resale platforms, and you've done that very early on. I mean, so many brands, like if you look at big fashion houses, they've been super reluctant to jump on the rental and resale bandwagon, and especially in-house. They may like dip their toe and be like, oh, okay, we may partner with X platform to do a little bit of rental, but you, as a small brand, have done it very early on. And you're one of the few brands offering rental on your own platform. So within the Maison Bank website, you can actually rent direct as well, which is fantastic. How do you kind of feel that the attitude towards rental and resale from standalone fashion brands and fashion houses has changed over the past year? If I'm honest, the whole resale thing was new to me as well. So I was really surprised at how well the reception was to people wanting to borrow and rent clothing. So, as you mentioned, my wardrobe HQ and by rotation, they reached out to me earlier on as well. Um, we love by rotation here. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're a great platform. We started my pieces on their websites first, and I was just really surprised by the feedback. So, I was like, well, why don't I just open this on my website as well? Why am I just, you know, relying on the demand for this office service to people? So, I included it on my website, and it's been great because not only for like the average consumer to come and borrow garments, but it's also been good for fashion stylists as well who want to borrow things for certain shoots and like different appearances. I'm not sure why this sudden, there's such a sudden surge and in interest in rental fashion, but it's great to see. I think for me, like rental, and if anybody follows, a, sustainably influenced, or B, myself, 
they'll know that I do harp on about rental ahead of a lot because I think it's a great way to access clothes that you may not necessarily be able to access, especially I think in the designer space where a lot of brands like even there's Retaro here with LDC. Retaro, we've had Georgie on the podcast before, who's the founder, who I respect and admire so much because she started her business as a young woman as well and she saw a need in the market and each of the bigger rental, especially peer-to-peer or I'd say B2C platforms, are offering such unique, different designers. So you've got some like, I find Retaro is the super cool one. You've got all the super cool brands that you may not have heard of, more of the up-and-coming ones, ones that have, I guess, also a lot more sustainability in mind. And then a couple of the other ones, even like by rotation, it's more of a mixed bag of what is on trend at the moment because it's peer-to-peer, so it's what people are buying and then renting it out. But there's also this thing with rental where I think it's a great way to try something out before you commit and making a decision as to whether you really want to buy an item. But I think finally, a lot of people are using it as a way to kind of dip their toe into sustainable consumption, or I should say conscious consumption, because I don't personally think that any form of consumption is wholly sustainable. But yeah, I think that's for me, that's where I think that the interest is grown because it's a new conversation and I think it's a new way for people to shop. And I was out with a friend last night who years ago, I broached the subject within like loads of friendship groups and said, oh guys, I'd really love us to do a swap between us. Let's all get together and we'll host like a swapping event. And all my friends went, oh, I don't want other people's clothes. But now swap shops are a thing. Swap shops are cool. You, like It's great. You can go, thrifting is great. Um, rental is great and people are so interested in it but five, ten years ago it was, ugh, I don't want somebody else's clothes I've always been a second hand queen, like I love a second hand piece I'm never going to say no to it because I often find things that you can't find anywhere anymore for a fraction of the price and yeah, I think like conscious consumerism is really starting to become a bigger conversation. How do you feel separately from I guess big brands, how do you feel like the everyday consumer is within rental and how their kind of attitudes are changing. Are you seeing more rental on your site or are you seeing people buying to keep? It's a mixture of both, if I'm honest. You have the rental stuff, but because I'm a small brand, I have limited sizes. So everything that I have available for rent at the moment are sample pieces that I've made for show purposes. That's a really good way of using things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Until it grows, it's really hard to say at the moment. I think going forward, I'll definitely because I've only gone into production from the shirts and shorts, as you know. And I have the set and I love the set and I wear the set a lot. <laughs> Even though it's getting chilly outside, I actually almost wore the shirt today and I went, no, I better not because I have a feeling she's going to wear it. That was right. <laughs> We're going to be twinning. <laughs> yeah, so I think going forward, once I am able to go into production with everything that I produce, just have more sizes available for rent because I do have people ask me, you know, do you have this and that set? And I don't, unfortunately, sorry. But it's a great way to kind of open up the conversation. So if they can't get it from their size, they might ask for like a bespoke piece or offer something else. And it's just, it's just a good way to get the brand out there. It's great customer feedback as well. I feel like it's free market research yeah. to see what you need as a brand and how to grow your business. And if people are asking for sizes that are necessarily out, outside of the core sizing that you create. Thank you to learn. Yeah, it's good for you to learn these things. I, I'm always saying it to brands like, I don't know if you know Goni, the founder of We Are King. She, oh. yeah, she does like bespoke stuff as well. And she always says, I make everything in every size. I don't, I may not offer it on the website, but if you email me, I'll make it. 
because that's the benefit of having a small brand. You have the opportunity to be able to cater for as many people as possible rather than having that restriction there. So I'm, I'm enjoying it at the moment. Are you seeing, as a small brand, size inclusivity? Are you finding people of sizes outside of that core coming to you more often? Yeah. And I'm really I didn't know what to expect, to be honest. There's more people asking for larger sizes than what I anticipated for. And it's the cabinet wasn't taught to you that. You know, there's like a whole other market outside of these basic size 6 to 14 as what is classified as the standard. But it's not the standard because why am I getting so many inquiries about all these other sizes? This is it. And I think the average size in the UK for a female is the size 16. I think that's the average size now. So but they keep saying it's size 10 or 12. Yeah, and it's not. So it's, so it's interesting. It's, I think it's, it might be a 14, but it could be like somewhere between a 14 and 16 because body shapes are changing as well and we need to cater to that. Let's move on and start talking about a little bit more about like circularity and sustainability. And so we're here within sort of the Learn Design Club today and it's so encouraging to see so many brands collaborating in one space, which I think is something we were talking about offline as well. What led you to be part of this collective? Is it because of your conscious ideals that you wanted to be here and things like that. Just give us a little bit of insight. Well, to be completely honest, uh, I know the founder of LDC. Fun fact, we actually worked together back in 26, I think 2016, to put on the first LDC event. It was in the basement opposite Bruce Street Car Park, um, in Full Circle. <laughs> and back then it was, what we called it, what did we call it? We called it London Design Collective. And that was something that made me once or twice. And then Rebecca, you know, continued to grow this amazing business, LDC, working with the town estate and having amazing locations in central London. That small brands, you can only dream of being here. So, you know, I've been watching Rebecca, what she's doing over the years, just keeping an eye and like, you know, just keeping it in the back of my mind. And then one day I was on the bus going through Knightsbridge. I saw LDC. I was like, oh my God, they have a shop in Knightsbridge just down the road from Paris. This is where I want to be. And so I quickly got in touch. I was like, guys, I want to be part of it to pop up. And it's been great. I'm glad that I did because it's a great company to kind of come and meet other young brands such as yourself and also to get consumer feedback. Um, yeah, it's, it's just been great to come here and speak to other people who are kind of on the same path as you, seeing how other people are operating their businesses and to be in a space where you have all these shoppers here and you're shopping in. Harrods down the road also coming to you next. So it's, it's a great association. I think the space where we're in, we're in Regent Street today, and it's an amazing retail space, first of all, huge. And it's completely kitted out full of amazing brands and designers and one-off like standalone brands. But it's so nice to see shoppers sort of filtering in that don't know what the space is and then they're learning. Every panel that I do, so many people don't know what sustainability is they don't know what conscious fashion is and they come in and they learn and for me whenever I'm speaking to them I always chat to people I try to pick them out of the crowd and you can tell the ones that are really listening because they want to learn the people that have been working in this industry and know this industry they listen they learn but it's not the same they don't have the same like excitement on their face but they're the people I want to speak to because I know that at the end of the event they're the ones that are going to then go and take that information and pass it on to somebody else and teach somebody that they don't need to be buying every £5 top that they see on Boohoo or Pretty Little Thing. So, yeah, circularity and responsibility are key pillars for your brand. 
as demonstrated in your use of old coins, which I found incredible. So was it old Jamaican currency? And upside of metal rings into your designs as well, which was in that beautiful jacket that you made us a bad track to copy. Um, how can we encourage more circular consumption on a much larger scale? Because kudos to you, and I love the fact that you're doing this as a small brand. I want to see the big brands using upside things. So how can we encourage that? I think it all comes down to education. I feel like the modern day consumer is a lot more educated than the consumers maybe 10 years ago. I believe that once the consumer is educated and they understand you know, how things are made, how to repair your garments after they break, then they will start shopping more consciously and wanting to make sure that their clothing lasts a long time. And I think it's only when that happens that the, well, the big brands will finally start to see that demand because you know, like big brands, they, they have investors, they need to make a certain amount, they need to be able to pay these people back that they borrowed money from. So, let's be, like, we all know, like, you know, sustainability and circularity is at the back of their mind because they've got tens of millions of pounds to pay these people who are on their necks. So, I think it's only when the demand for, you know, more conscious clothing and more consistent clothing um, is at the front of people's minds, it's when that will start to happen and start to be changed. I totally agree. It's always all about profit, isn't it, over people, unfortunately. It's difficult. And I think when you're a smaller brand, you have that flexibility to factor it in from a much earlier point. And when it comes to the production, how do you factor in circularity with your designs? I think from like conception stage, do you bring it in very early? Or is it something that when you're sort of designing a shirt, or let's just say you've got an outfit and you think, oh, I want to design this, do you then think about how you can incorporate more conscious methods or is it preconception? How do you do it? Yeah, so my thing is I don't bring something as luxurious if it isn't sustainable or if it hasn't got anything Love that. out of it. <laughs> you know, it, it's not. Even though it may look beautiful, but they, it needs to have a good heart, you know, just like people. It's not about what's on the outside, it's about the inside. So for me personally, there's many different ways in how to be sustainable and how to be a conscious brand. Yeah. My main thing is I try to not use plastics at all. Because my mate, well, when you go to circularity, my thing is using natural fibers that are produced by the earth so that when you do eventually disregard that outfit, that it can disintegrate back into the soil and become the earth again. With plastics, you can't do that. It's there forever and it's something that the earth is actually suffocating from. Just on the back of that, could you just educate our audience and listeners as to what some of the fibers they should be avoiding are? If you don't mind. Just avoid plastic. Go for cotton, go for 100% wool. Try to avoid polyester when you can. I understand sports where it's needed, but at the same time, there's, there are other alternatives. We're just going to give London Fire Brigade a second to go past. But also, I think people mentioned this a few times. Sometimes you do have to buy plastics, but if you are, like, make sure that the item you're buying is going to last you and that you know how to repair it. I think that's such an important thing to know. Yeah. I think people need to understand how to, you know, things do break and it's sometimes out of our control, but if we understand how things are made, we will respect them more and want to take care of them more and also take the time to repair it so that it can last a long time rather than thinking, oh, we can throw this away. Definitely agree with you. I think repair is such a big thing. Like there's so many amazing tech apps and startups that are out there, like Sojo, which again we've had on the podcast. I believe they're here at LDC as well. 
that offer these kind of repair services which are so much more accessible for us in our modern day lifestyles and society where you can literally I mean I think everybody should become best friends with their local tailor and dry cleaner because more often than not they're going to be the ones that you go to if you need something fixed you need the button sewn on if you don't have that that skill because it is a skill at the end of the day to be able to fix your own clothes I mean I'm one of very few people that I know that can sew but not with a sewing machine terrible I can sew by hand <laughs> but not with a sewing machine like yeah, but it's these things that these are skills that they don't teach in schools, or you don't have those sort of, that sort of education around anything anymore. And it goes back to what you were saying about education; it's so important. So, for my final question before we open up to the floor for a quick Q and A, over the past few years, Deloitte has conducted surveys into consumer attitudes and behaviours towards sustainability. Um, the research is really interesting, actually. And it shows that in a post-pandemic world with fewer choices and opportunities due to the impact of inflation, supply chain disruptions, as I know most of us have experienced, consumers are kind of finding more innovative ways to spend less. In light of these findings, how do you think that we'll see attitudes towards sustainable consumption change further, especially with regards to those circular methods that we've mentioned? So I think this can either go two ways. Um, <laughs> Another controversial response. Okay, so when looking at history, I think humans are very good at cutting back and making do with what we have when there is like a financial crisis happening. Um, so if we look at during World War One, you know, there was the rationing, people cutting back, buying less. There was a big thing where people were taught to mend and to repair and to make do with what you have. And then after the World War, we had the Roaring Twenties, where everyone was like, okay, we're good now, you know, I have money in my pocket, I'm going to spend on parties, I'm going to, you know, buy all the gold and jewellery. And the same thing happened with World War Two. People cut back, made made it with what they have. And then after World War Two, there was the introduction of the Dior look, where there was the volume of skirts and people spending their money again, and, you know, wanting to have a more luxurious aesthetic. So... Going forward, I think it would be great to think that people would continue buying consciously and yeah, being careful with what they spend their money on. But then there's a thing where once things do become better after the you know the financial crisis, that people will just start spending again, kind of forget to try and build up their esteem again and to feel happy. However, I do feel like Gen Z are going to like shape the future. I do feel like they're just so much more knowledgeable than what I was growing up. I feel like they understand that their needs come second and that the world comes first. So I do feel like with Gen Z on board, I do feel like they could be like a positive outlook. I think you are right there. There's um, definitely a generational shift and saying that they're also the ones that are buying a lot of fast fashion but then they're very savvy in how they shop so they'll buy a couple of fast fashion pieces maybe sell a few maybe they'll upcycle them into something else so they're consuming in a very different way to how a millennial would shop i was like god i sounded like a boomer just then Um, (laughs) but yeah thank you so much for answering all those fantastic questions they've been like fantastic Thank you so much to Shanna and the LDC for giving us the opportunity to have this conversation. This was the last episode of this mini series. Thank you for hanging in until the very end. This has been a real labour of love and the new season of Sustainably Influenced is coming very, very soon. Until then, you can subscribe and listen back to previous episodes of Sustainably Influenced 
on all good podcast platforms. You can follow at Sustainably Influenced on Instagram and TikTok. I'm Bianca Foley. Thank you for listening. This season of Changemakers, brought to you by Sustainably Influenced, has been produced by Content is Queen, sound editor Amber Miller, and our research assistant is Toyo Douglas, presented by Bianca Foley.